Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the sun, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Good morning. How are you? Good. Uh, my name is Matt. I am a pastoral resident here, and it's my pleasure to get into this text with you this morning. I wanted to make it a little dramatic by starting it out right away with it. Uh, <laughs> um, but I just want to start out by encouraging you. Andrew just pretty much prayed the beginning of my sermon as he came up here. But I just want to, uh, the spirit is at work apparently. Uh, but I want to encourage you this morning. Every time I come here, there are new faces coming into this church. We're seeing growth in park and not just numerically, but spiritually as people are maturing in Christ. And the people that have been here, who have made Park their home, I'm seeing them take the newbies under their wing, the new people that have come, and just trying to get into genuine relationships with them. So I just want to say thank you and tell you that I appreciate uh, your heart for the gospel and for those relationships and reflecting Jesus, because that is a huge witness to who Jesus is. What you just heard a second ago was God's words revealed to a specific people in the first century AD. They were revealed to a people who, like us, were in need of encouragement. They were people that had needs just like us. They had joys, they had sorrows, they had friends, they had addictions, they had fears, they had guilt. 
They needed to see that God was greater than all of those things. Do you feel that need when you sit here today? Or have you become numb to this? Or could you be that you, you have come in and you don't know Jesus, but there is some hole in your life that the world can't seem to satisfy? As we get into the book of Hebrews, the author seems to want to make one main point, and that point is, as the sermon series is called, Jesus is better. Needing to see that in, in light of everything in, in all of creation, it all pales in comparison to who Jesus is and what he's done. So the text we're going to be in is Hebrews 1.4 through 2.4 today. It's on page uh, 1001 in the Pew Bibles, so you can go ahead and turn there, and while you're doing that, I just want to ask that you pray with me. Lord, we, uh, we need you. Uh, we need you every hour, so Lord, would you come and be our teacher this morning? Would you move in this place? Would you open up your word to myself and those that are here And would you inspire us to greater love, obedience, and worship to who you are, Lord Jesus, recognizing that you have completed all that is necessary. Lord, help us to respond to that in the love that you have shown us. And let us bow at your feet in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning we're going to do something a little different. We are going to start at the end of our passage. And I'm going to read it again. It's... This whole passage is pretty heavy in theology, and I'm going to read it again because I think there's more to it than just theology. I think it's really easy in light of all of the stuff that is up here in the clouds, the truth that is revealed about who Jesus is, that it's easy for us to ask the question, who cares? What is all of this matter? What is the importance of the fact that the text says that it was through Jesus that God created the world? How does this impact my day-to-day life? How does this impact my relationships? How am I supposed to respond to this? You see, I don't want us to just read this passage this morning and we gather a bunch of theology and I scream Jesus is better at you a couple times and then send you on your way. This is not encouraging for us. We need the real Jesus. We, We need him to meet us right where we're at. We need him to meet us in our joys and in our sorrows with all of our prejudices and our biases and our baggage. So we're going to take this section and we're going to start at the end. And chapter 2 starts the whole point that the author had made in chapter 1. So he intros us in the beginning of chapter 1, gives us this grand, vast theology, and then chapter 2 is the so what moment. And so I'm going to read this. If you would follow along with me and just try and follow along carefully, he says this. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So here's the deal. Here's what we just read. In the first century, 
This is Second Temple Judaism going on during this time. And at this time, angels were the topic of a lot of speculation. And, and I was trying to kind of bridge the gap between how we think about angels and how they think about angels. So I tried to grab some pictures of ways that we think about angels in our common context sometimes. So let's see. There we go. There's our first one. Okay, so sometimes we think angels are awkward babies with middle-aged male faces playing harps on the clouds. <laughs> okay. Here's a second one. I think sometimes we sing the pendulum the other way, and some of us have too much of an interest in demonology, that is, uh, fallen angels, and we get too wrapped up in that, and I think that is dangerous. And then finally, to make it as contextualized as possible, I got precious moments angels for us. <laughs> and there's got to be one person in this room with precious moments angels. And that's, that's not bad. I, just, I want to express it. That is not bad. <laughs> It's, it's interesting, but it's not bad. Uh, and here's the thing. This is, while this isn't bad, that is not the way that Second Temple Jews would have thought about angels. Right? For them, they had this concept that angels were the messengers of God. In fact, if we're looking at the Greek word angelos, which is the Greek word for angels, it also doubles as the word for messenger in the language. And according to Jewish tradition... It was through angels that God delivered his law to Moses. So from a literary perspective, when we look at the book of Hebrews, it's safe to assume that this was a book most likely written to Jewish Christians. And that would mean that they would have had a high value for the law and therefore would have had a high value for angels. So here's the question. In light of that therefore passage we just read, here's the question that the author is leading us to ask. If the law was delivered by angels and their message proved to be trustworthy, how much more should we trust the message delivered by the Lord Jesus, who is a better messenger than the angels? I'm going to read it one more time. If the law was delivered by angels and that message proved to be trustworthy, how much more should we trust the message that was delivered by Jesus Christ, who is a better messenger than the angels. That is our point today. Jesus is the better messenger, and everything we're going to look at for the rest of this morning is answering the question, why is Jesus a better messenger? So let's look at it. Are you, are you good with this? Are you tracking? Okay. Verses four and five say this. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now when we read this, this phrase, the name that he's inherited, the name that he is referencing is son. And that's not saying that Jesus has not always been the son of God. It's saying that he has inherited the name son as the heir of the father's will. So reason one, the first reason that the author of Hebrews gives us for why Jesus is a better messenger is that there are no angels who are the unique son of God. In other words, Jesus' position is higher than the angels. And this is not belittling angels. What he is doing is magnifying Jesus. 
So you may ask, why does Jesus, being the unique son of God, make him a better messenger? And this is why. It makes him a better messenger because he is in a unique and perfect position to reveal the Father. We come here, and many of us have different, a variety of viewpoints, a variety of baggage on what it means to have a father. But I want us to remember that our fathers are not this father. And this is the heavenly father who is perfect, he is complete, and he has nothing but good intentions for his son and love for him. And because of this perfect love and care, the son is in a perfect place to be able to show us what the father is like and to tell us what the father desires for us. Another illustration might be uh, if there is a father who works for a company and he is giving the speech at a banquet, he wants to have somebody give the introduction about who he is before he gives the speech. And so he could pick one of two people. He could pick one of his part-time employees who sees him from a limited perspective but nonetheless has a relationship with him to give the introduction about who he is and where he's come from. Or he could pick his own son who knows him through and through, who has seen him in all circumstances of life, who has been through thick and thin with him, and knows exactly how he is, no matter if it's in open doors or behind closed doors. So the question is, which one of those people would be better suited to reveal the message of the Father? I think we can all agree that the Son is in a better position to be able to do this, and thus Jesus the Son is in a better place to deliver to us the revelation of the Father instead of these angelic employees. Jesus is a better messenger because he is the unique son. So that's the first reason. Reason two, not only is Jesus the unique son of God, but he is indeed God himself. Believers, this is what sets us apart from, from other belief systems, different faith traditions. We don't believe that Jesus was merely a teacher or a good historical figure, but we believe that he was indeed God incarnate, the second member of the Trinity. We use the word Emmanuel for God with us. Let me read verses 6 through 12. And again, he brings the firstborn into the world. He says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Brothers and sisters, we see three things here making a case for Jesus' deity. The first one is in verse 6, and the angels are called to worship him. Secondly, we see in verse 8 that the kingdom actually belongs to Jesus and that the kingdom is never-ending. And finally, in verses 10 through 12, we see that he is separate from creation. That is to say that Jesus is not a created figure, but that he is himself the creator, that he has always existed, and that he will always exist. So in simple terms, what does this mean? 
This means that Jesus, he is not just the son revealing God, but he is actually the God who is being revealed. Now, like I said, that's heavy theology, but practically what does this mean for us? It means that any time we are opening the scriptures and we are reading the text, it means that anywhere we are seeing God move or expressing or revealing his character, his compassion, his love, his judgment, his anger, his mercy, his kindness or his grace, we can be assured and have confidence in the fact that Jesus is there in full agreement with what God is doing and that his character is also being revealed. I know that for many of us, we wrestle through the idea of how God reveals himself in the Old Testament versus how he has revealed himself through Christ in the New Testament. But friends, the point is this, we cannot separate Jesus from the God on the left side of the book because he is the God on the left side of the book. Church, this Jesus who we follow is better than the angels because he is not a creature created by God, but he is by very nature God. And so therefore it would seem silly to neglect his message. Now for the author's final point. The final reason that Jesus is a better messenger is that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. This is the one the author kind of sneaks in with one verse at the end. It's verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Now, this right-hand language doesn't quite translate into our culture and our context. Some of us might say we have a right-hand man or someone who we trust. But contextually, this is meaning that the person at the right hand is the one in the honorary position. So because Jesus is sitting at the right hand, he is, he is sitting because he has completed the work, that he has finished what is necessary for the time, but it also means that he has been given equal dignity and authority as the Father. Church, just think of this in, in light of Jesus' condescension, that, his, that is his incarnation, him becoming a man. This Galilean Jew who would have appeared to many to be born out of wedlock, the author of Hebrews is claiming that he is sitting in the honorary position next to the Father. Friends, not only is Jesus the better messenger in light of this, but he is the only messenger with this authority. He is the only messenger with the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. And only because he is God does his life, death, and resurrection have eternal value. Does it finish the work? Only because he is God is he able to pay the debt that we have incurred through our sin. And if he has the authority to do that, then he has the authority to renew our lives then he has the authority to reconcile our relationships and satisfy our souls. So brothers and sisters, Jesus is better, not because I say so, but because of his position and his nature and his authority. He is the son who gives us VIP access to the Father. He is the God of all creation, upholding the universe by the word of his power. 
And because he's the one sitting in the place of honor with all authority, he is the one who has conquered sin and death. Now let's begin to go back and return to chapter two where we started. The author says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Church, this is the message that we have received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised three days later in accordance with the scriptures. Because he lives, we will live if we trust him. If this is true, then everything has changed and nothing will ever be the same. If what it says about Jesus is true, then I would say he's certainly trustworthy. Now, we may not view angels and have this comparison going on between angels and Jesus in the same way that early Jewish Christians may have, but we all believe messages, and these messages are delivered to us by different messengers, different media. So that can be through social media, this can be through uh, the news, could it be through friends, family, or coworkers? So the question you have to ask yourself is what are these messengers telling you about who you are, about what your ultimate purpose of life is and how you are to live? You see, the questions I want us to reflect on today are these. Unbeliever, if these things are true, then is this Jesus trustworthy with your life and future? You're certainly believing in some messenger or some message that is informing the narrative that you live your life by. So is that message greater and more trustworthy than Jesus? If you have questions or want to discuss that, I would be thrilled to have that conversation with you. Believers, is there a message you're trusting more than Christ that is informing who you are and how you live? Is there a message you're believing more than this Christ's gospel? I want you to take this time as Ben and the worship team come up to reflect on these things and to humble yourself before this Jesus based on his position, his nature, and his authority. Have you recognized recently that he is the unique son, the exalted king, and the eternal God? We have to make sure that he is actually on the throne in our lives because he deserves no other place. Let's pray. Father, we submit ourselves to your rule. You are our king, and you rule in love, and you have triumphed on our behalf. So Father, would you help us to see the son more clearly? Would you inspire us to follow him wherever he leads us? And would you make the purpose of our lives to do no more than glorify him everywhere he places us. We love you and we want your will to be done in Jesus' name, amen.